0: This is Macro Horizons, episode 32, Bond, Long Bond, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of August 19th. And a reminder, when it comes to the perfect monetary policy cocktail, it's shaken, not stirred, with a twist of tariffs.
1: The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries.
0: Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at BMO.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. So Ian, fair to say it was a week of records. It certainly was. We had record low 30-year yields, which was a bit surprising, particularly given the fact that 10-year yields didn't set record lows simultaneously. There's clearly been a significant flattening in the curve. We see that in thirties, in particular. That has been rather dramatic. There have been a number of different explanations offered for why the curve flattened as dramatically as it did and where the bid for the long bond has been originating. One of the things that we can say, at least anecdotally, is that the market has been carrying a very significant short position as evidenced in future space. And to some extent, there had to be a reasonable amount of capitulation or short covering involved, given how dramatic the move was. We have also heard throughout the course of 2019, anecdotally at least, interest in longer-dated treasuries from overseas buyers on an unhedged basis. Now, that represents a shift in buying patterns historically. The two regions that jump out are Japan and Korea. And as the Treasury's data revealed this week, Japan has overtaken China as the largest holder of treasuries once again, albeit by a small amount of only $10 billion, but the shift is nonetheless notable. One of our other big takeaways from this week was just how immune the treasury market has become to the economic data. We had much higher than expected core inflation at 2.2% year over year, and retail sales surprised on the upside as well, with the control group printing up 1%. Within the retail sales print, it's worth noting that non-store sales were the single- highest contributing group so clearly amazon prime day had an impact on sales this month one of the other notable aspects of the way that the treasury market is trading at this moment is the response that we've seen in the shape of the yield curve to the stronger than expected data we came into this week curious to see whether or not the curve would steepen if we had an increase in realized inflation. Point in fact, what we saw was the exact opposite. We saw a reasonably strong flattening bid as the market interpreted higher than expected inflation as constraining the Fed's ability to be more aggressive in their rate cutting ambitions. And all of this with the backdrop of the on-again, off-again trade war. To say that there have been conflicting messages about the prospects for a near-term trade deal would be to understate the fact. Whether they were headlines out of Beijing or from the White House, it is unclear at this moment, even when the next meeting is going to be, let alone how long this entire process is going to take. So in that context, to see 10-year yields dropping as low as 147, admittedly within striking range of the 132 record low, really isn't that surprising. What continues to perplex us, frankly, is the shape of the yield curve and its responsiveness to upside data surprises.
2: This is the first episode of
0: Macro Horizons in the wake of a twos-tens inversion. That's right, Ben. It's been a fascinating week in the treasury market. Now, to be fair, it's not the first time that we've seen an inversion in this cycle for the treasury market. The three-month bill versus 10-year yield has been inverted, twos-fives have been inverted, but this week, we saw 2's 10's drop below zero for the first time since 2007. That particular curve tends to be thought of as the benchmark yield curve, and an inversion has historically implied a economic slowdown with the risk of a meaningful recession. Now, what strikes me at least is that the 2's 10's curve typically doesn't invert after the Fed has delivered the first rate cut of the cycle. So there is something to be said for this time being somewhat different. And if we look at the Fed Funds futures market, there's still another two or three 25 basis point rate cuts being priced in. And nonetheless, 10-year yields are trading below where the two-year benchmark is.
3: In general, I agree with all of that. There are a couple points that I would also make. The fact that you're seeing deepening inversion after the Fed starting its cut cycle really reflects the massive degree of cynicism and skepticism that the market has that this will truly be a mid-cycle adjustment and not something bigger. There are a variety of ways we have this play out. One, going into the July meeting, I think we had discussed that the metric to decide was there a policy error will be, did the curve flatten? And did break-evens collapse or shoot back up towards 2%? We've seen not only the curve flatten, but push into inversion and break-evens collapse. That indicates a Fed being too hawkish. In terms of other ways this has played out, we've seen the January 2021 Fed Funds futures contract dip below 1%. So the probability of not only another couple rate cuts this year, but further out, is really getting cemented in investors' mind. As we've entered a whole new narrative and moment, the final thing I'd point out is for all the focus on twos, tens, frankly, what's more remarkable to me is the fact that 30 year yields dropped to all time record lows. If that's not an indication of downside risk to growth and inflation out to 2049. I don't know what would be.
0: Well, John, you've made the point in the past that if we look at the Fed Fund's futures market, we can say that there's really one of two distinct outcomes being priced in. One outcome is that the extent of the fine-tuning cycle really is just 75 basis points of easing, and then the Fed goes on hold. The other outcome is that we have a much more significant campaign that pushes us right towards the effective lower bound over the course of the next call year, year and a half. So when interpreting the price action that we're seeing in the futures market, I think it's important to have that context. The other thing that I would add, and this is one of the things that I have been struggling with to some extent, and that is It's one thing to say that the market is pricing in a much more significant rate cutting campaign and it's not a mid-cycle adjustment. It's another thing to watch the price action suggest that the market has lost faith in monetary policy's ability to actually stimulate growth or stimulate inflation the way that it has in prior cycles. And to some extent, that at least in my mind, has really put a cap on where I would expect 10 and 30-year yields to ultimately end up. The logic there being, if the Fed has been unable over the course of the last six or seven years to truly stimulate the type of demand-side inflation that they wanted, given how easy monetary policy has been, how are they going to achieve it in an environment where global headwinds and deflationary pressures are coming as a result of the trade war rather than a classic domestic macroeconomic issue.
3: I think those are all very excellent points and you know we're entering that moment in the year where Jackson Hole is going to become increasingly discussed similar to all the issues you just went through the topic appropriately is challenges for monetary policy. I think there is a recognition globally that monetary policy is truly pushing a string at this point. They're trying to fix trade issues. Powell's even started to acknowledge a benefit of monetary policy being bringing people into the labor market. Historically, monetary policy was something that was thought of as only short-term disruptions to the labor market and controlling inflation. In general, it seems that there's a necessary broader rethink of the monetary framework. Because yes, inflation isn't collapsing into deflation. It's not accelerating. But we are running a massive risk of seeing a de-anchoring of inflation expectations to the downside, which only keeps rates lower for longer for the foreseeable future.
0: But then we also had that surprisingly high core CPI print last week. So core CPI came in at three-tenths of a percent month over month in July on top of the comparable move that we had in June. That brought the year-over-year core inflation print to 2.2%. That actually creates a very difficult situation for the Fed to be even more aggressive in September. I think the best that we could ask for from the Fed at this point is another 25 basis point rate cut in September simply because core inflation has picked up beyond market expectations.
2: Yeah, Ian, and I got the question following CPI of, wait, higher than expected inflation, why are we getting a flattening of the curve? Shouldn't we be seeing the long end underperform? And to be honest, I agree. It's a little puzzling, but it does reaffirm the notion that at this stage, what really matters is what the Fed decides to do. Decent inflation lessens the probability that Powell is able to deliver 50 basis points in September. Hence, we see a flattening ultimately all the way through zero.
3: One other point I'd add to that in terms of interpreting the data is a bit of nuance and timing. Yes, this was July's CPI data, but the whole world changed on July 31st and August 1st. We had the simultaneous one-two confusing punch of the Fed cutting rates and a massive escalation in trade tensions. So any data you get before July mechanically must have occurred before this new round. So something I've been struggling with is how much weight do we put on economic information that occurred beforehand? The problem, though, is we won't get updated solid reads on August, September, where the true impact of the recent equity market volatility, tighter financial conditions, heightened uncertainty plays out until August, September, perhaps even into October. So we're kind of in a period of, yes, July looked great in core CPI terms, but we also just had something that shifted the underlying tectonic plates a little bit. How does that play out going forward? I can't imagine the past few weeks have been positive for economic momentum.
2: So do you think it's fair to say, come the meeting on September 18th, that the Fed is going to want to exercise caution? And now that's intentionally ambiguous because is exercising caution being more accommodative or more cautious in being too accommodative?
0: Well, I think that that's actually the point that Powell is really going to be struggling with. What the situation that's developed over the course of the last couple of weeks has done is it has given the Fed a way to outdove the doves, and that is not deliver just a 25 basis point rate cut, but to up the ante to 50 basis points. Now, I've made the point earlier that the increase in core inflation makes it less likely that they'll go more than 25, but in and of itself, that does create an opportunity for the chair to say, listen, we're trying to get further ahead of any potential slowdown than we might have in the past, and here's that extra stimulus. And in that context, I think that we would see a rather significant risk-on move.
3: Your point about Powell's communication is spot on, and I'd also add that it won't just be Powell. We've had a pseudo Fed blackout period. We got a little bit of comments from Evans and Bullard, and they just kind of said, oh, we're open to additional rate cuts. However, with Jackson Hole, not only will there be the key speeches, but you'll also see a lot more interviews with FOMC members in the coming week. That'll help solidify where they're thinking about 25 versus 50 right now. And I would expect some volatility around market pricing just as we're trying to get a better sense of how has the committee interpreted recent volatility, current levels of inflation expectations, and what act as appropriate would mean if things kind of stay the course going into mid-September.
0: So, John, this is the second time that you have brought up Jackson Hole. Did you get your invitation this year?
3: No, I I assume it was on delayed send, but I won't take it too personally. And speaking of still
2: waiting, we've made it this far without mentioning anything that's going on outside of the United States. I mean, Germany had a negative quarterly GDP print, the surprise primary presidential results out of Argentina, and what seems to be continuing escalations in Hong Kong. I mean, that's provided a pretty significant flight to quality bid and is probably a large reason why we've seen 30 set record low yields.
0: Yeah, the story in Argentina was quite a bit of a surprise, at least to me. I think that there was perceived to be a significant challenge to the sitting president being reelected, but I didn't expect the market to respond as dramatically as it did.
3: Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. It was, in dollar terms, the second largest daily drop in an equity market in history. And it was something like a 17 standard deviation event, which should have happened approximately zero times since the Big Bang. So one, remarkably big price action. Two, the world's obviously not normally distributed. And after that
0: brief statistical interlude, the big situation in Argentina isn't the shifting from one leader to another. Rather, it's the risk that the new government will revert to some of the more interventionist behavior that we saw during that period of 2007 to 2015. So when it comes to the potential for a credit default or credit restructuring in the EM space, it follows intuitively that we would see a pretty significant risk-off response.
3: So if a lot of what's driving current cross at macro pricing is animal spirits, fears, general risk sentiment... What happens if and when that subsides or calm our heads prevail? Should we expect a retracement? And I guess as a follow-up question, what's the technical perspective saying right now in 10- and 30-year yields, and how much can we lean on technicals in a move that's so heavily driven by a fundamental rethink of the economic outlook?
0: Well, by most metrics, the treasury market is clearly overbought. Sentiment is extended into territory where we would expect at least an in-range correction if not a actual retracement back towards higher yields but as you point out the fact of the matter is that the technicals become less relevant when we have such a fundamental repricing in the rates market so we've been leaning less heavily on those indicators That being said, once we do have a moment of calm in terms of the negative risk sentiment, I would expect that we see something of a retracement. What I'm more concerned about, however, is that given the negative yield environment for such a large section of the global sovereign debt market that any episode of risk on will actually translate through to higher yields in the front end and exaggerate the flattening or inversion that we're seeing in the curve.
2: And I would put error quotes around retracement. I think the level that we can see yields back up to has slowly drifted down over the spring and summer, as these revelations that we've discussed have kind of played out. Whereas once we highlighted 275 as the ceiling of 10-year yields. I think now that level is closer to 225.
0: Yeah, I think that's a very fair point, because we are very much of the mind that the fourth quarter risks seeing upward pressure on rates as we see budding optimism for the year ahead in the wake of several rate cuts. However, that goalpost certainly has been lowered whereas 250 might have seemed very conceivable when 10-year yields were at 2%. We're now far more likely to see 150 10-year yields long before we see 250 10-year yields. But that doesn't preclude a period of bearishness once all of the dust settles.
3: An observation we've made is that back in 2012, there was a sense of when are we ever going to see yields this low again, where post-crisis in a QE environment, obviously we can't go lower from here. I guess I'd kind of flip that observation on its head and say, when's the next time we might see 10-year yields at 3%? Outside of tail scenarios, in my opinion, it might be quite some time.
2: Yeah, John, and you haven't even mentioned the fact that the Fed is starting to do buybacks. Oh, I love buybacks.
0: Perhaps this is a uh, John-splainable moment.
3: Yeah. So on that note, the Fed is buying treasuries again in the secondary market, those aren't buybacks. They're not buying back anything. A buyback is when treasury buys back some of their debt. They did this in the early 2000s when they had a surplus. Sometimes this happens around the debt limit if they need to reduce the amount of outstanding. But what is currently happening is not a buyback. They're not buying back anything. It's more like a little quantitative easing program in the sense that Assets that were previously dedicated to MBS are being rotated into the treasury market. So this is an outright purchase in the secondary market, not a buyback. And the reason this is important is it depends on the counterparty. Treasury does buybacks. The Fed does outright purchases or quantitative easing. Understanding who's actually making these purchases matters for the mechanics and therefore consequences of what this flow will do to the treasury market.
0: But it's only $20 billion a month spread out over
3: all maturities, correct? Yeah, and that's why, incrementally, this should tighten Treasury OIS spreads, but this isn't a game-changer by any means. So the Fed is just buying it back. I mean, if you want to assume the Fed and Treasury are actually one secretive big organization, yeah, sure, they're all doing buybacks.
2: Wait, they're not. And thus concludes this week's installment of the John Hill Monetary Policy Semantics Rant.
0: In the week ahead, it's a very typical late August week. We have very little economic data on the calendar. In fact, the highlights actually include existing home sales and new home sales. So it's safe to say there is very little expected from the real data That would recast the market's expectations for where we are in the business cycle. More importantly, we hear from the Fed. We have the FOMC Minutes on Wednesday afternoon, as well as Jackson Hole. And Jackson Hole is a great opportunity to really set the stage for what the market should be expecting when the FOMC meets again in September. Our baseline assumption is that we're going to see another 25 basis points in September. And if there are real prospects for a half point cut, the stage is likely to be set for that later this week. One of the policy transitions that has been on our mind for the Fed is a move toward price level targeting, or an average year-over-year core inflation objective. Given what's gone on on the trade war front, we find it difficult to imagine that Jackson Hole will be the venue at which any major announcement on price level targeting is made. Nonetheless, it could still end up being topical. One of the broader questions that we've received quite a bit recently is whether or not the Fed can actually do anything to change the economic prospects domestically as well as abroad. Has the Fed run out of monetary policy tools that can truly stoke inflation this late into the cycle? Perhaps that's a topic that gets addressed, especially given the conference's official topic, which is challenges. To monetary policy. All of this suggests that the Treasury market is going to be in a bit of a holding pattern until we get to Friday. In terms of yield levels that we're watching, obviously, 147 is going to be important resistance if the market does end up finding a reasonably strong bid. In the case of a sell-off in 10-year yields, we'll be watching the 21-day moving average, which corresponds well with that 160 to 165 zone. As for the shape of the yield curve, Again, we've been very much focused on timing the cyclical re-steepening of the curve. However, the fact we have seen the curve invert puts a lower bound at roughly zero for the time being, and we'll be watching attentively to see the market's response to any material shift or transition on the policy front, both monetary policy as well as trade policy from the White House. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who's managed to make it this far. And with only a few summer weekends remaining, we'll concede that rate strategy is most bearable when enjoyed near a barbecue or a large body of water. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen I-A-N at bmo.com. That's ian.lyngen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative.
1: This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including without limitation any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you. To the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable.